Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Andrew Cushman. He's a former chemical engineer who in 2007 left his corporate position to start flipping single-family properties in Southern California. He then transitioned to multifamily acquisitions and has successfully syndicated and repositioned over 2,100 multifamily units. So thank you so much for being on the show, Andrew. Uh, good to be here, Charles. Appreciate it. So you have a very interesting story. Can you give us a little background on yourself, both uh, personally and professionally, prior to getting involved in real estate investing? Yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, you met. I when I was in high school, um, I knew I wanted to do my own thing because ever since I was five years old, I used to do. I used to mo mo you know rake leaves for Pete neighbors and shovel snow and do all that kind of stuff. Um, probably wasn't all that good at it at five, but I did it and still got paid. So that's all that mattered, right? They were happy. I was happy. Um, I knew I wanted to do my own thing. I had no idea how to be an entrepreneur, so I figured, hey, I'll get a chemical engineering degree. At least I'll have a good job until I figure out what I'm really going to do. Got the chemical engineering degree. Went and worked for a great food company for seven and a half years. Got married along the way and my wife and my wife had the same idea that I did and so we just kept looking for different opportunities we tried we like we made popcorn and you know oh we can sell flavored popcorn and you know vending and all this stuff and we figured out okay every one of these things makes a little bit of money but it's really just another job mm. and uh, I think it was in late 2006 we I happened to be walking through the break room at work saw a Wall Street Journal article about flipping houses I said oh that's interesting picked that up read it went and researched it learned a lot about it and said and my wife and said okay this this is it we're going to try this uh i in to do that business it required reaching out to people who were in pre-foreclosure meaning they were behind on their payments the bank was gonna take the house but they hadn't taken it yet and saying hey let's see if we can help you and then at the end if the, if they couldn't keep the house hopefully they'd want to sell it to us um and so that involved reaching out to those people so being an engineer and not real good on the phone it took me four thousand five hundred and seventy six cold calls Wow. Uh, to get our first deal working probably 90 hours a week, my regular job and that one, but we got it. And when we got that deal and then we flipped it, we made as much as I made all year at my job. So wow. I said, all right, this is, I don't know what better sign than that. So uh, I walked in, quit my job, went full-time into flipping. My wife did the same thing two years later after a couple, you know, about four really good years of that business, we said, this is great, but it's also kind of like a job. Um, it's not mm. quite as bad, but it's similar. And they said, what, what will build long-term wealth? Mm. What will build passive income? And we just came out of a recession. So we're going into an expansion. All these people who lost their houses can't buy another one. So they're going to rent. What's going to do well in those circumstances? And we're like, well, apartments should do well. So we uh, went and found a mentor to learn the business from. Did our first uh, first syndication was um, 2011. It was 92 units, mostly vacant on the mm -hmm. other side of the country. And then, like you said, I've done 2,100 units since. It's been a great business. I uh, love doing it. And uh, yeah, lots of, lots of benefits. So. So it's interesting. Yeah. So you're getting out of the transactional and you're getting more into the wealth generation, which is uh, an awesome place to be. I want to kind of dig into this first deal because it's very interesting for me. Number one is that uh, a first multifamily syndication deal. So you, you, you know, you, you picked going into a deal that was 75% vacant, if I'm correct on 92 units in Georgia, was it Macon, Georgia? Is that correct? Yep. You're right on. Okay. So tell us a little bit about how you found this deal and why did you choose such a, I mean, such a heavy renovation. 
Well, first of all, anyone listening, don't do what I did. <laughs> um, the reason I chose it was because I was naive. And the reason I got the deal is because the broker spotted a sucker from a mile away. Uh, this was back in, this was back in 2011. There was lots of distress. Uh, buyers were far and few between. You could basically, you know, pick any property you want, make an offer, and there's a good chance you're going to get it. And, you know, what we did is we knew we liked the Southeast. And so we just started with Atlanta and then literally followed the freeways out. And there was a particular broker in Macon who seemed to have a, almost, I think he, he had like 80% of the listings. We saw that one, called him on it, ended up working out a deal. And uh, we said, okay, um, you know, there's one point, no, the purchase price was like $700,000 for, for 92 units, which kind of that oh. tells you something, right? <laughs> and then with the rehab and everything, the total capital raise was $1.2 million. Um, so, yeah, so that's how we did it. Oh. We just said, hey, you know, we like what's going on in the Southeast as far as population and business trends go. That's an area we want to invest in long term. So let's go out there. And then um, we found this property. And uh, again, you know, again, I would never recommend someone go buy a C minus hard, you know, very high, heavy deferred maintenance, mostly vacant property on your on your first deal. But that's what we did. So. And so uh, how do you know you we, I imagine you raised all the money for this or did you get some kind of loan with it? I mean, I imagine there's no there's definitely no typical loan for a hard money loan. Yeah, I mean, today you could probably get a bridge loan for 55 yeah. percent or something like that. But back then there was yeah. no lending on that kind of thing. Uh, so what we did is uh, we we syndicated it and basically it's, we, we, it was a cash indication saying, okay, we need a total of $1.2 million. Uh, here's our pro forma and we're going to go out to investors to raise that entire $1.2 million. And that was, you know, we coming from the flipping world, we knew some investors because that's how we funded our flips, but we underestimated how difficult it would be to raise $1.2 million back mm -hmm. in 2011 with again, a very different market and our limited network. Uh, and we almost didn't get it done. It took us six months. We had to delay closing multiple times. And at the uh -huh. end, how we did it is we actually got the seller to carry a note for it was either two or three hundred thousand dollars. And that's that's how we completed the race was actually getting the seller himself to finish it so, so we could close. Wow. When he did that, how many years did he do that for you? Like, uh... you know what? Um, I don't. Remember. It was either three or five years, okay. and we did successfully turn the property around. When, when we bought it, he was collecting eight thousand a month. Again, on ninety-two wow. units. Uh, and then when, you know, we eventually got it up to collecting about 40,000 a month. Um, and so we refinanced it into, you know, agency Fannie Mae loan, paid him off. Investors got, you know, all their money back. And so it eventually, it, it turned out great, but it was a rough learning experience. So let's talk about how you, like with this property, how did you estimate the rehab? Like when you're doing it, did you bring a lot of GCs in? Were you using your own knowledge from single family? And then also, uh, you know, managing a project three time zones away because you're in California. Yeah, we estimated it poorly is this is the succinct answer to the question. <laughs> uh, what we did is we did bring some contractors in for certain aspects of it. And the remaining aspects, we made the classic beginner's mistake of kind of leaning on, you know, what you hear, especially if you go to boot camps and stuff, you hear these rules of thumb, right? Don't ever, ever use a rule of thumb. So we'd go into units and be like, okay, well, yeah, we will just budget. Yeah, this should be $5,000 for this unit. And then, we, well, okay. And we could classify, we said easy turn, medium turn, hard turn. And we said 5,000 for this. Well, the problem was with a property built in the 60s and 70s that's been neglected for 15 years is every time you touch something it's like peeling back the layers of a rotten onion 
Uh, you find out, you know, okay, I need to fix this layer. And you move, you take, you go to do that and you realize there's four things wrong beneath that. And so the renovation ended up being way more than we anticipated. Uh, so we, we went over on that. How we managed it is we partnered with a management company, a third party. And then we actually hired a renovation coordinator, a guy who used to have his own um, general contracting business. And we hired him on salary to go live on site mm -hmm. and, and run, the, run the renovation. So that, then that was a critical piece of being able to do that kind of lift from the other side of the country. Um, now, nowadays, you know, kind of as you, as you referenced, if we're do, when we're buying a property, before we close, we have contractor bids on everything. So we know, you know, to the T what the budget should be. And of course, we factor in a, you know, contingency and all that kind of stuff, but there's no rules of thumbs. There's no guesstimating. We have bids on absolutely everything beforehand. But on that first one, uh, it was a mix of, well, we think it'll be this and we'll get a few, we got a few bids. And um, with that much neglect of a property, there's a, there was a lot more there than we had estimated. And we had vandalism along the way that added to it. So oh. even with the guy living on, um, on site? Yeah, because it was a nine, again, 92 units. So it's a decent yeah. sized property. So he's living on one end. And mm. then for example, one night someone broke into a vacant uh, fourplex. So one of the buildings that only had mm. four units and they ripped out all the copper out of the walls mm. and didn't bother to even turn the water off. So not only did they rip the, you know, rip the copper out, but they fl flooded the units, right? So that was like $50,000 worth of, you know, vandalism. Uh, you know, at, 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 you know, on the property. So uh, again, a lot, of, a lot of lessons learned um, and we have all kinds of procedures and things in place now to prevent all of that. Um, we learned our lessons, but uh, yeah, so that's how that happened. Other than, uh, I mean, other than this, this, the high vacancy and uh, a, a miscalculation on the estimating for the rehab, were there any large, any other huge mistakes that you made? Maybe uh with the property, like choosing it or anything else like this that? Uh... Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, uh, it, it is, you know, it, it's very common if you, you know, when you talk to a lot of owner operators, syndicators, anyone in the business, it's extremely common for, for us to start off and see assets and then mm -hmm. kind of move up the chain, right? And we ended up doing the same thing because you want them to say, oh, but hey, this is cheap. We can afford it, mm -hmm. right? Well, it's cheap for a reason. Uh, and so one of the, mis I would say the mistake is, is we bought a low income property in a low income area. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is something you know, we, we, like, we would never even think, think about that kind of asset now. Right. So, you know, today we screen for population growth, median income, crime rates. We look at what the neighbors are. Is it in a flood zone? There's all kinds of parameters that every property has to pass before we'll even look at it. So that was one mistake. We, we bought a, a, you know, a, of C minus property in a C area. And even more important is it, you know, you know, there'll be some people listening. Oh, I've done great on those kind of properties. Well, we have two, um, but the area was not only C, it was declining. Okay. Right. Yeah. So you're not going to get cap rate compression. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get population growth. You're not going to get income growth that will, you know, uh, 10 X your returns. Um, on the property. And again, we, you know, fortunately we did buy at the right point in the cycle. We did buy at the right price. Uh, and so, you know, it, it still ended up to be a very profitable deal, but we made a ton of other mistakes as far as outvaluating costs and, 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 you know, sub market and all those kind of things.
Yeah. Interesting. So what is your current criteria now? You're sticking more to uh, what is your strategy and criteria now? Is it B class? Yeah, we're B class um, or if a C, we'll look at a C plus if we can bring mm -hmm. it up to a B and if it's in a B neighborhood. So generally we're looking at 1980 to 2010 construction mm -hmm. uh, in, you know, in, in B to A markets. And we buy in markets where there's strong population growth, uh, you know, strong incomes. And so, so to put numbers on that, you know, we will only buy a property if the median income in that neighborhood, not a three mile radius, mm -hmm. which is what you see in a lot yeah. of OMs, because that's deceiving. Yeah. You know, a three mile radius, that's six miles apart, right? So you can get a neighborhood way over here that the median incomes are 150 grand, but your property is in an area where the median income is 15 grand. And it, the numbers, you know, the, the statistics lie, right? So we look at, we go, we actually pay for data from ESRI, E-S-R-I, so we can get in median income at the neighborhood level. Mm. And we are, we won't look at anything if the median income is below 35,000. We really prefer it to be over 40 and ideally over 50. Mm. Uh, the reason for that is affordability. Uh, if you, I, you know, affordable housing is generally defined as, um, someone can spend 25% or less of their of their gross income on rent. So if your rent is $835 a month, that's $10,000 a year. So in order for that to be uh, you know affordable and someone only has to pay 25%, that means that the median income needs to be 40,000, right? So that's how that so if you're investing in California or you know uh, the mid-Atlantic, those numbers would change for you, but for us in the southeast that that 35 to 40,000 cutoff works. So that that's that's a that's absolutely critical. Again, we don't buy in buy, don't buy in flood zones. We mm -hmm. look for areas where popular ideally population growth is above the national average, but the requirement it has to be at least flat or or with the national average. It can't be declining because uh, over mm -hmm. time you're going to lose pricing, you know, pricing strength with your, with your rents. And we can't be a high crime area. We won't buy in an area that has high crime. And we also look at uh, the neighbors. We won't buy something next to a traditional mall because mm -hmm. um, because those are dying, right? We've yeah. seen malls, oh, we've seen a handful of malls in Georgia go completely dark, go out mm -hmm. of business, right? Which is kills the local economy. Now, the one exception would be is sometimes you can find a mall where there's already plant where they're gonna come in and redevelop it into something mm -hmm. completely different. That that's a positive. So we won't buy next to a mall. We won't buy something if there's like a you know laundry mat and and you know kind of rundown commercial. Uh, and then, but some of those those are some of the main factors. We've actually like I said we've got a whole a whole procedure that they run mm -hmm. through. But those are those are the critical ones. Yeah, it's so important because it's funny when you talk about the income because uh, unless you're driving the area, you can see oh wow income on these properties really change. But when you're looking at it on a map, you might say wow income is really different between this and it could be train tracks it could be a highway and mm -hmm. it mean that's 30 40 feet right you know what i mean i mean it's nothing you know uh it's and you're like wow that's really changed you know one side of the street's better than the other um and so it's so important to know your neighborhood and see that there's some sort of wave of gentrification coming through it because without that i mean you're just going to be like you said buying in a declining area uh and then there's no right there's no cap rate compression so at that point um there goes your returns you know what i mean so, um, so what do you, when you're, you talked about screening your neighborhoods and stuff like that, what is your role in the process? Are you finding deals? Are you underwriting? Are you raising money? You know, for many years, I was every role. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we, we did bring on an admin, uh, admin person pretty early on. And, and that was a blessing. And mm -hmm. she's still with us. And now she's way above admin. She's knows and can do anything. Um, 
these days we we've brought on a couple more people um you know one is focused on uh acquisitions and he actually lives out in atlanta and so my role now is really is primarily relationships uh, relationships with the investors. Um, so, like, you know, you know, whenever we bring on a new investor, we actually uh, that that person and myself, um, you know, have a one-on-one -on -one phone call as well as some some other steps. And you know, when people are investing in the deal, uh, you know, the deal. And this goes for any any sponsor that anyone is investing with. It, it the success of it is more on the person running the show than the deal itself. I mean, a great deal mm -hmm, is, yeah. is is obviously mm -hmm. what you, you want that. But uh, a, a good sponsor can take a bad, bad deal and turn it into a good one. But a bad sponsor can take an amazing deal and run it into the ground. Uh, and I've seen both happen, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, so my, you know, my main role is those relationships on the investor side. And then also, uh, you know, I have a lot of longstanding relationships with brokers that are that are bringing us the deals and then the relationships um, with our property management company. And I also go out of our way. And this is this is this gets into asset management, which is a critical piece of, of, of multifamily, is I have good, you know, very um, uh, active relationships with our on-site staff at the mm -hmm. property. So the maintenance, the, the maintenance manager knows how to, he can call myself if he wants, right? If he's mm -hmm. got to, if you got to, not for, hey, what do I do about the air conditioner on unit 3C? <laughs> but like, if he's having an issue, like, hey, you know what, the regional managers, I, I don't feel like I'm being listened to. I need these tools and I can't get them, you know, stuff that you know, they, they, they don't call for day-to-day -day, day stuff, but, you know, important stuff. And really it's more, they know that, there's an open chain of communication and they have the whole, they have the vision of where we're trying to get the property and what their role is in that. And so my role is to provide that vision, to provide them with, you know, a venue. Um, you know, I, I tell them all the time, my role is to enable you to be able to do your job as effectively and easily as possible. Mm -hmm. Right. So what tools do you need? Do you have any ideas on how to improve things and all of that? Um, and then, of course, I um, I no longer do the initial underwriting of, of deals because um, that was a bottleneck. So now we have a couple people that that do that. And then if we're going to put in an offer, then that's when I get involved. And then certainly if we're actually uh, believe, you know, believe we're getting an offer accepted or we're going to go under contract, then I, then I go back okay. through every single detail. So I'm kind of at the high level deal approval now. Nice. Nice. So you're working on relationships, you're sourcing money, sourcing deals. Um, that's, that's one very interesting what you said about, uh, doing, having contact directly with the maintenance men. We do something similar there, uh, like, uh, with our attorneys and stuff, even eviction attorneys, I've had uh, mm -hmm. attorneys call you and be like, Hey, we can't reach the manager. I'm in, you know, eviction court right now. What are we doing here? You know what I mean? And so it's great to have that contact uh, for those one-off uh, uh, calls, not like yeah, like you said. Um, one thing I said when I was reading, when I was uh, researching for this episode is you said uh, about how you vet passive investors and how it's kind of been an issue in the past. And this is very interesting because it's not something that many people talk about or I don't. Um, how do you vet your passive investors and how, I mean, how does that process work where, you uh, you can bring them in. They're into your network, and how do you know that um, it's you know how do you know that they're going to work out for a deal that you uh, you've got going? It, yeah, it really comes down to communi clear communication and understanding what what each person's expectations are. Mm -hmm. And so where that comes from is going back to that very first deal. I mentioned that we needed one point two million dollars. Mm -hmm. Well, from the get go, I had two investors that each said, "Hey, I'm in for four hundred. I'm like man, this is awesome. I already got 800 raised and I haven't even started, right? Well, one of those investors who actually was a pretty good friend, 
uh, it turned out he didn't even have the money and he ended up filing bankruptcy a couple of years later. Right. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, I didn't do a good enough job of, of verifying that he actually had the funds available. Um, the second one, he had the funds, but turns out I didn't ask enough good questions. If I, he wanted to be my general, he wanted to be general partner on the deal. And and he and his four hundred came attack came with that that attached. And I was like, wait a second, we barely know each other. Like you know, getting being a partner in one of these things is like a five to ten year marriage. And you don't you know you don't. It's easy easy to get into, hard and messy to get out of. And I already could tell like him and I would you know would probably want to see things differently. So even though it was scary, I said sorry, can't take your four hundred. Right. So those are two examples of you know I didn't find that out up early enough um i found it out later and of course it caused me in a lot more difficulty and eventually obviously did raise it but um it caused a whole lot more stress but so now you know if some if, if you're saying okay i want to i want to take other people's money in and provide them with an opportunity and syndicate you, number one um and, and this is this is this is you know, what we do is we have them fill first thing we do is have them fill out a questionnaire mm-hmm. you know it just kind of says hey you know are you accredited are you sophisticated how much money do you, if you like a deal, how much money do you think you want to invest? Um, you know, what's your timeline for, you know, can you, are you want to invest now? Are you looking to invest in six months? Um, you know, do, are you okay with a five-year hold, right? You don't want to accept funds from somebody who needs their money back in 12 months if you're doing a five-year deal, right? So you want to make sure that those expectations line up. Uh, if you're look, if you're talking to somebody, and another question we ask is, you use this usually during the interview is, hey, if you were to invest in a syndication, what kind of returns are you looking to get, right? If someone says, I want a 25% IRR, you know what? Hmm. Five years ago, we could, we could do that. I wouldn't prom. I can't, I don't feel, I don't feel right promising that to, in today's market. So we're probably not a good fit for you. Right. So that's, that, that, so when it, when it comes to vetting investors, that's really what it comes down to is making sure their expectations and financial goals line up properly with whatever opportunity that you are providing them. And if not to say, Hey, you know what? I was great meeting you. We appreciate it, but we're probably not the best fit. Um, and, and, you know, that, and that's really the way to do it now. You know, as far as like, you know, deeply vetting them, like finding out the guy was actually on the verge of bankruptcy <laughs> instead of having 400 grand, we don't we don't do that anymore. And the the key there, the key mistake I made on that first one is I was basically relying on two people mm. for 80 yeah. percent of the capital stack. Don't do that unless you've got someone that you know is absolutely mm. reliable and vetted and will sh- and will show up with it, right? So now. You know, if I talk to somebody and they're like, oh, we're going to invest 50 grand and turns out they file bankruptcy, no big deal because I'm not relying on that 50 mm-hmm. grand. So as long as you don't, as long as you do that, where you're not relying on a particular person, uh, then then you should be good. And then also, especially in the beginning, always raise way more capital than you think you mm-hmm. need in yeah. terms of soft commitments, right? So if you need to raise a million dollars to do your first indication, get soft commitments you know, basically someone says, yeah, I'll invest um, for 2 million. Yeah. Because when it actually comes time to write that check, some people just get cold feet. Some people say, shoot, I forgot. I got to, I'm going to, um, I'm buying a condo for grandma, you know, whatever. It's that first time around, it tends not to show up, you know, at a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. You're definitely going to have 50%, especially in your first indications. Uh, it's typical for 50% to kick out as I've seen before. And it's like you said, I've had everything like people buying RVs, people doing this, people that all this kind of stuff with their money, or they've already invested it. 
and yep, that uh, you know that's in in like oh listen come back to me in five years okay or something like this so that doesn't, <laughs> right, really, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't really help me now but thank you for being honest with me um so uh tell me some of the best ways you guys have found obviously right now over two thousand units done it's not really an issue for raising money but i guess when you're starting out or maybe what you're continuing now what are some of the best ways you found of sourcing capital from investors you know it's it's changed uh since we've since we started the business you know when when i started it was basically strictly you know in-person one-on-one networking uh we definitely started as most people do you know friends and family mm-hmm. you know people that literally my, my mom was our first ever check Right. And, and, uh, and on that syndication. And then, um, now again, people that we had met in the flipping business. Now, today, uh, all of that still applies, but the new syndicator has a lot more other venues, right? You can start, you can go on places like Bigger Pockets and start, just get on the forums and just start getting involved in conversations and answering questions and asking questions and connecting with people and letting people know what you're doing. And people will reach out to you and be like, hey, well, you know, when you do your next deal, let me know, right? And you say, okay, cool. Hey, let me, uh, let's, let's get on the phone for a few minutes and um, then I'll get you in the system. Uh, so do that. Um, so there, you know, it's, I mean, you know, I know, I know people who raise millions of dollars on Instagram, right? Mm. I've never made an Instagram post in my life, but, um, you know, nowadays, if you're good on Instagram, you can raise millions of dollars for real estate. Uh, so those are those are the way, and and, and candidly, we're looking at transitioning a little bit and say, well, okay, well, you know, how do we how do we in a professional way, you know, use those platforms as well? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that that is really friends and family, immediate network, and then build a following, however small. Uh, you know, you only need you don't need that many mm-hmm. uh, raving fans or partners to to get started. And then that the the second thing is partners, right? Uh, maybe you're a really good deal finder, really good underwriter partner with somebody who already has the network and can raise the capital that's what we did for deal number two three and four is mm-hmm. the, the the pete the guy that taught me the business you know i after closing the first deal i went to him and said hey you know we barely made that raise um but we love the business and we learned a lot would you partner with us and he's like you know we could actually get along pretty well sure we'll do that and so with the next three deals we found the deals and he helped us raise the money. And by the time we got past that, it starts to snowball and we, you know, we didn't have to do that anymore. Um, so either, you know, you can, you can do it. I would say do it yourself, but then also simultaneously consider who you might be able to partner with that can bring that to the table for you, for you and accelerate your, your, your skill yeah. scaling. Yeah. So find out the places that round out uh, people that round out where you're not the best at and uh, to finalize the whole deal with the GP. Mm-hmm. So what kind of mistakes do you see real estate investors make? Uh, well, one is, especially you know, in today's market, I see a lot of investors making overly aggressive assumptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw a sponsor put out a deal the other day where they assumed, uh, in addition to their value add strategy, 4% market rent growth for five consecutive years going forward. Um, uh, that's a bit aggressive, you know, like it, everything has to go absolutely mm. perfect for five years in order for that to happen. Uh, so, you know, aggressive, two aggressive assumptions. Another one is undercapitalizing deals. Mm. And this is something that, uh, you know, I've seen over and over again for the last 10 years. 
where you know someone says okay uh you know the purchase price is this i need you know 200 grand for renovation and or um you know pay a fee here pay a fee there okay that's how much capital we need you also need operating reserves you need contingencies for uh, for cap, you know, for um, in case your your renovation budget runs over, how much is your deductible um, on your insurance, right? Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. We had a pro- we have a property in the Florida Panhandle that got destroyed by a hurricane in uh, in 2018, and you know, I, the, I mean, the deductible on that I think was almost four hundred thousand dollars, right? So do you have the reserves to cover the deductible and? Do you have the reserves to get going on rebuilding that property instead of waiting for six months until the insurance carrier cuts you a check? Um, or, you know, uh, we've had properties where, you know, managers commit fraud or something like that. So, you know, always having sus- sufficient reserves to, to get the property through any kind of unforeseen circumstances. The reason people don't like to do that is because of course, when you're underwriting, it, it drops the return, right? Cause you've got cash that's just kind of, you're raising and sitting there, but it is far, far harder to get capital after you close on the property than it is to get it up front. And it certainly would, you know, we've, we've never done a capital call, uh, but you know, if you have to go to your investors two and a half years down the road and be like, oops, sorry, we need some more money. That's not going to go over well. So uh, always, you know, uh, d- always bring more as much capital as you can to the table up front. Okay, awesome. So, what do you think are the main factors that have contributed to your success? Relentless persistence. Uh, I don't give up easily. Uh, you know, like I said, we made I made forty five hundred phone calls to get our first flip. Uh, the, you know, we just closed a large portfolio in March. We had to, we looked at 347 apartment complexes uh, to find that one that we truly felt was a great deal and, and was worth, um, was, you know, was a worthwhile opportunity. So yeah, so patience and relentless persistence and not, not compromising on things we shouldn't. Um, and actually that's a bit of a, I mean, so you know, we're probably a little too conservative and everyone these days gets on podcasts and says they're conservative and actually kind of <laughs> drives me nuts because half of them aren't. But you know, the flip side of that is, is I, I, when I, well, the reason I say, I think we're too conservative is we, we probably should have bought a lot more deals, um, over the last few years. There's probably deals we passed on that actually would have been great. So it, it's kind of, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to balance out. Right. Cause you're, you're yeah. guessing about the future and, and you want to, you want to, um, your goal is to under, uh, over uh, under promise and over deliver. But if you do that too much, you're never going to buy anything. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, so that, that, that's, an, that's another thing that I would, uh, that would add to that. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Andrew. Uh, how can our listeners learn more about you and your business? Uh, probably the easiest way. Uh, like I said, our, so I'm, I'm still gearing up to to social media. I'm kind of I'm semi semi old school here. I'm, I'm trying trying to get up to the modern age. But probably the easiest way is just our website, vantagepointacquisitionsvpacq.com. Uh, if you Google Vantage Point Acquisitions, that'll come up. It's usually the top, top uh, search result. And there's a number of tabs on there for learning about, you know, investing or mastermind. Uh, we have a mastermind for uh, people who've actually started investing and have, have taken action and gotten into the game and want to scale faster. Uh, but also, if you just want to reach out and connect, uh, there's a contact us tab on there. And of course, LinkedIn and Bigger Pockets and all those as well. So Awesome. Yeah. So our listeners can reach out to you and your team and learn more. And uh, thank you so much for coming on today and looking forward to connecting with you in the near future. Yeah, sounds good. I appreciate it, Charles. Take care. Thanks, Andrew.
Hi guys, it's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at ScheduleCharles.com. That's ScheduleCharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.